0: Catholic stuff you should know.
1: The J Ten Initiative
0: Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Father John Neppel. <laughs> hey, wh- I, I can't what? even did I, did I don't it, even do want that? to try
1: to do Father Father Nathan. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Catholic kind of stuff you should know. Father John Neppel, Father Mike Rap. <laughs> no
0: it's not really this is father i got you all
1: (laughs) Uh (laughs) father michael O'Loughlin and father Mike Rap. yeah michael what's up now did you
0: did you already talk about the uh, motorcycle skid
1: i did i i touched on it vaguely because of uh, certain sensitivities but those sensitivities are gone now so um so yeah i was in a on what May 25th, my anniversary, was in a motorcycle accident, borrowing a buddy's bike, and uh, and as I've mocked Goebel already for, I <laughs> got less injured from a motorcycle accident <laughs> than he did riding a razor scooter. Oh, <laughs> I
0: didn't hear that yet. I like it. I like it.
1: I'm not gonna say that. I didn't realize how sensitive he was. Like he's just a very active guy, more, much more active than I am, and so having not being able to fish or golf oh, yeah. or ride his bike is a lot. I sh- I should not. Say anything bad about that at all? Because he's it's
0: devastating. I know it is devastating. We do feel it's bad. Beginning for of the Nathan. summer, my gosh! But he gets to watch the World Cup. Yeah, <laughs> and uh he gets to maybe cook for this new parochial vicar.
1: Yeah, right. Cook Welcome with, him. With half his half hospitality. His body.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, so then you skidded, but you wear leathers or what? I wasn't
1: wearing leathers. I actually had leathers in the saddlebag. I was not wearing. I, I was not wearing. It was such a hot day. I was not wearing my leather jacket. And I should. And honestly, if I'd been wearing my leather jacket, I don't know if I would have had any damage to my body at all. Like I had a couple small scrapes on my hip and my ankle, and my hand. But if I'd been wearing leather jacket, I also been wearing been wearing the leather gloves, which I was not wearing either. But the 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 worst wound by far was my left elbow. Was where I where I kind of like. I must have held on to the handlebars, on my left elbow skidded up. We, we did talk about this. Well,
0: last, so the, then, time then, you, then you share that injury with Father Nathan, exactly Isn't that the same? Le-
1: left arm, yeah, left arm injury. Which again, thank God, are both right-handed. And I was watching. I was playing bags or cornhole or whatever. What part of the country you're from calls that game? On Sunday night with a couple of friends playing bags, and uh, and I was watching a guy throw the the um, the bag with his left hand. And it just looked so weird to me. Like I'm just so right-hand dominant that even watching some people do things with their left hand, like things that I'm doing as well. Like you watch professional baseball and they're so much better than I am that it doesn't look weird. I'm like, well, they're just, they're, you know, they're, they're monsters and robots, and, and you know they <laughs> w- train their body to do this thing perfectly. But like when you're throwing bags, or someone's like, ah, oh, this is a fun game. But I like I was watching this guy throw with his left hand, and it almost like creeped me out. I was like, that just looks so Pretty weird see, that see, someone gonna, can throw that accurately with their that left. That guy's going to
0: dominate. See, that's what like yeah. I like tennis. John McEnroe and Rafa Nadal, these lefties are they lefties? Okay, just confuse the other person. Yep. Because yep. they can hit shots, just that subtle difference from one hand or the other, a tennis player gets so used to playing yeah. against similar, you know, swings and patterns right. and stuff. Then you do something like you switch hands. It's like
1: what? Yeah. Is it almost going creeped on? me out. and I could see that would be the case. I mean, like what's that in uh, the Princess Bride, right? Where the the two guys are sword fighting both their left hands? <laughs> <laughs> what's that? There is something you do not know, or I've ever got the phrases <laughs> with everyone. I'm not left-handed, and he flips it over to his right, and then the other guy there finally says, "Hey, there's something you should know, too, and he flips it over. So.
0: Okay, so um, Good movie. for those of you who don't bike, I don't bike either, <laughs> so I don't know yeah, why I'm do. telling you this. Well, <laughs> I mean, motorcycle.
1: Oh, I, I, would, oh, I see. I right, would right. love
0: to, man, I, but I'm not really in the position to do that right now. Okay. But... You wear leathers so that if you crash and skid against the ground, right. you're not going to get it hurt. Yep. Right? So you, it's not just a style thing. It's a style thing. It looks cool for sure. Right. But um, it's also like nature's protection. So I think, I was thinking about this, and I think God like built in natural skid protection <laughs> for all the deer and cows <laughs> of the world. So right. maybe like, they ought to be riding these things. Maybe we should make them for them. Because I don't think they can make motorcycles themselves, but maybe right. they could ride them yeah. if we taught them. Yeah. How do you think about that for the future? Future so, of mankind.
1: So this is my question. Is leather as tough or tougher when it has blood and oxygen coursing through it like our skin does when it's on an animal? It just—it just seems to me that leather is actually tougher when we treat it, when it comes off the animal. But uh, you know, maybe I'm just misunderstanding what leather is. But it just seems like my
0: my mind starts (laughs) running through like a million ways to test this out. Right. I don't really want to encourage the kids to go mess with the animals.
1: I, I love that our banter is usually on things that we have absolutely no knowledge of or experience <laughs> of, and we're talking to people that probably know a lot more than we do, and we're like, "This is Catholic stuff you should know." We're supposed to be this talking is, about things that we know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's well, what dudes do. This this yeah. woman Christine, uh, shout out to Christine. She works at Lord's. She was telling me about mansplaining the other day, <laughs> and I I wasn't really buying it because I'm like, now nah, that's just like arrogant people. That's right. not. That's not men, right? And I know maybe women feel that way. It's like that's where she was coming from, and I'm, I'm sure it happens a lot. But I don't think it's a common, like a a, a social, like a cultural affliction or something like that.
1: So mansplaining is like when a man thinks he knows more than a woman, even though he doesn't, and so he like talks down to a woman to explain something that he thinks yeah. she doesn't know about, but he really doesn't know as much as she does about it? Yeah. Okay. Or
0: he, f- he just feels the need to condescend and sort of yeah. explain something to her. And she said that this happens a lot on, on TV news. And wow. I don't watch that, so I didn't really know that situation. I'm like, look, I got four sisters. I already know that they know everything. <laughs> but maybe it's like dudes don't mind just like talking about stupid stuff that they have no authority on.
1: Well, if if I maybe can, that's what it is. If I can compare it, they're like it happens all the time to me. Where I will I will meet someone for the first time, and they feel that I don't I don't think it's for the same reason. They feel they need to explain God and the Church to me, like like because they're talking to a priest. They yeah. they, they probably rarely talk to a priest. They're talking to a priest they did not expect to, so they start just talking a monologue. This happens all the time. A monologue about what Jesus would want what the church should look like, you know, what faith is, you know. And and I just kind of sit there going, you know, I love hearing it because I love hearing people's perspective, but they're speaking from a place, it sounds like it's authority and like they're trying to teach me something. And I'm going like, I feel that they're being condescending. I think it's probably only because that's the only topic they think I talk about. So they're just trying to have a good, you know, kind of banter and lighthearted you know, small talk conversation with me, but it is, I do have to like, I do this interior eye roll. Like, yeah. do you think I don't know this? Like I, it's coming across as being demeaning and patronizing and condescending and maybe that's how, that's what some men do and how some women feel. So
0: yeah. I and guess. Pe- like, and it's just, I guess sometimes it probably is sort of, Trying to teach you something, yeah. And then other times it's just like I, I don't know how to relate to this person except right. to talk their language. Right? And,
1: they know exactly, exactly. But,
0: yeah, you wonder sometimes. I think sometimes religion is uh, fits into the social category of opinion. It's kind right. of like no, know, political it opinions does. and yeah. stuff. So they're kind of like, oh, I just want you to know my perspective because yeah, it's all relative. It's all yeah. you know opinions. I didn't, obviously, I don't believe that, and I studied um theology for enough years at the postgraduate level right to know that there's a lot of you know facts and detail and um truth or nonsense yeah and it's not all opinions and stuff Honestly, but i do think people kind of think of religion that yeah. way a lot of people
1: i do need to qualify by saying these are people that are not practicing religious like people people that that do like take their faith seriously I will listen to them all day, and I'll be taught by them all day. And even people that don't, I like hearing their perspective. But it does come across as condescending to me. And maybe I'm just trying to say I see how some women feel with with the mansplaining. But um, but there, that's the other thing. Is that's another reason why I love being an evangelizer, but also being celibate. Because you get to the point where people are explaining religion as, they're all the same, it's it's a truth to you, whatever you believe, one is not better than the other, and all this crap, you know, and, and when, when they're saying that, you're kind of, I'm saying, look at my life. Like, if I was a married man and making money off of what I do, then it'd be like, sure, you can criticize me, because my faith is not really affecting my life that much, like, I could go get a job doing anything, you know, and make money off of that. But faith for a celibate is obviously not about money at all. So it's like, you're telling me that 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 every truth is just my truth and you have your truth, and yet— I've given up everything yeah. for something that is completely relativistic. And if you feel that this religion or this philosophy or this sociology is just equal to the way that I see my faith, then why would I have given up everything for it? You know, these beautiful, beautiful things like a wife and kids, and I just don't think they can answer that. That's where the crazy comes in, like we were talking about last time. It's like, that's where they're just like, well, no, it's all, it's all equal. It's just the truth to you, and you're just crazy for not... Having not sleeping around, as they would say, you know.
0: Yeah, I don't like. Why? Why would someone just do that? You know, kind of like tell you about how, um, yeah, how, how relative, how um, I don't know, insignificant yeah. your life decision, is. like the thing that defines you. Exactly. Like I'm not gonna. Somebody comes up and they say, "I'm a vegan," and I'm not gonna. I might inside, be like, oh, I feel sorry for you. You don't get the joy of bacon, you know? Right, right. I'm not going to tell them, you know, veganism is nonsense. Like, you have to eat this or that, or, I don't know. I don't get a lot of that, tell you the truth as a priest. Like, people condescending. I think there's a lot of fear and a lot of, like, wondering what I'm doing and what I am. But I don't get a lot of sort of lectures or whatever.
1: But I actually think that's the assumption, is that when people are face-to-face with somebody, they generally do just think that this person isn't very different from me. Like you read about someone and you engage them on social media and you think we could be completely different from each other so you can do all the things people do on social media. They insult and the anonymity protects them. But when you're face-to-face, I think you generally assume people are like you. At least that's been my experience. So when they come to me and they start saying this, they actually think that I feel the same way. Yeah, you're
0: going to Like, like yeah.
1: Jesus is just a small part of my life. I talk to him for an hour on Sundays, and then I get on with my life. That's kind of what they assume, because that's the way many people live. But it's like, my celibacy is in a very real way a real witness to that is not the case with me. It is not. Like, Jesus is everything to me, everything. And, and it, so... You know, it is very different when Jesus, people acknowledge that Christ is everything to them, and and then those who, you know, will call themselves Christian or Catholic or whatever, and then he's just kind of like, oh, well, it's it's part of my life that I think about every once in a while, and in hard times, it makes me happy, you know, and I'm like, like oh, those are two radically different lifestyles, and as Christ says, you know, the lukewarm are I will vomit from my mouth it's mm, like yeah. th- those are the people that are that are really we should be working on more because we worry for their very salvation you know the, the, those who are lukewarm one of my one of my uncles is is very very anti catholic and very anti organized religion and I've always thought in discussion with my family about this like he'll come back like he he's so radical he's so hot or cold he's so against this that there's a lot of fodder there's a lot of um stuff that our Lord can work with to bring them back, you know.
0: And you see a lot of people who are defensive, the more energy they have, the more interest they have in something. Exactly. Because they live out of that sort of, you know, that even even the frustration is like this is on their mind. Right. Instead of like, yeah, I don't think about it. I have no energy about it. I don't care like at all. That indifference.
1: That's the true evil.
0: Well we've already transitioned
1: is that a good transition? Into our uh, topic. I have no idea what your topic is, so I'm <laughs> excited to it that worked that way. Kind
0: of. I mean, this this conversation sets up a good transition because we're talking about how different people have different um, ways of looking at religion and how a lot of things can be confusing when bringing people together with different ideas or different values Um, the way that they look at the world and about life can be different. And how do you bridge that gap? So this is always the question of evangelization, dialogue. Every time the Christian reaches out, you know, um, like when a Catholic says, I want other people to uh, engage me as a Catholic, right? So I wanted to talk about evangelization and colonialism.
1: Ah, okay.
0: So I don't know exactly... Uh, what to say about this, but the reason I'm interested in the topic is that I started reading a biography of St. Junipero Serra, who, um, well, I found the biography in the library, in the rare books room. I I think they call it the rare books room.
1: That's what you call it at our seminary, yeah.
0: Okay, so... You can go in there, and that people have given books to the library, but they're not going to shelve them. Maybe they have another copy or whatever. So they sell them for cheap. And I saw this relatively recent um, biography, and I thought, I'm interested in listening to a story about a saintly person who lived recently and um, who had zeal for the mission. Because I felt like I was kind of waning in my zeal for the mission,
1: and, and it's from our country who ministered in our country.
0: Yeah, and then recent, yeah, he's recently canonized. When the Pope came to the United States, he canonized this guy Junipero Serra, and he. So this is the one of the Franciscan missionaries who set up uh, missions all along the coast in California. And invited local Native American groups um, to sort of settle there, to get educated there if they wanted, to enter into kind of the business ventures of the mission, so farming and trading, and uh, to kind of see it as like a town center, and um, yeah, just to be offered kind of the gospel and then also European culture and civilization and everything. And um, it was different than the civic setup where the towns were being set up by military people and governors from Spain in this case. you know, California was kind of Spanish yeah. colonial. So um, the thing is with Junipero Serra... He was a very saintly man. He was very dedicated to the gospel and to um, Christ. And uh, he was well-educated. He was a teacher in Mallorca, uh, an island off of Spain, mm-hmm. Spanish-speaking. He taught philosophy and theology for the first half of his life and then came to the United States when he was um, 35. And, well, first came to Mexico City but then was sent up to California. But there's a lot of like miracles associated with his life, and he was just a good man who protected the people, protected the innocent, cared for the poor, did a lot of good, and then opened these missions. But he's also a very controversial character right. because he was involved in the the colonialization of the Americas, you know, like European colonialization is considered very a, a kind of an embarrassing chapter in world history, right. at least at the level of kind of history in the universities right now. So the intellectual class right now um, is talking about post-colonial things. You know, we're embarrassed about, where we're supposed to be culturally embarrassed about Europe going into um, foreign places and turning them into little Europe's and right. forcing their culture on these foreign cultures that they considered primitive and they thought they were doing this great thing of giving them a more civilized culture, updating things, progress, industrialization, all these you know technological and scientific advances, ways of thinking, ways of doing things. So the fact is that a lot of indigenous cultures have been wiped out. Yeah. And it's tragic, and it's it's kind of embarrassing. And we say, well, was this worth it? Like, was it good? You know, they thought it was good. There was sincerity among the Europeans. Right. But it was an ideology that said, we're better than you. Right. And, okay, so there's better ways to do that than others. You can come in with a military, attack everybody, subjugate the people, enslave the people, and trade them around the world and do all these things. Some Europeans did that. The Christians didn't do that. I mean, they weren't interested in that. And there was actually a whole lot of Christians speaking out against treating people poorly. Just, Mm -hmm. if you want to know, if you're interested in Latin America and um, this sort of encounter of Europe and the natives, read Bartolome de las Casas. He's a a writer um, from Central America... Um, a brother, I think he's a Franciscan, but he wrote books kind of fighting with the the local European um, colonists uh, for the rights of the hmm. people. Okay. And uh, they're beautiful. They're beautiful to read. But uh, this guy, Junipero Serra, it's not so sure like exactly how he thought about colonialization. He wasn't Absolutely against it, but he also didn't um, really fight against changing the cultural, you know, elements like bringing in the Native Americans and turning them into this sort of new Christian mm-hmm. California or whatever. Okay. So that that's kind of the big the big picture. Um, those are big topics, big problems. It's almost like bringing up. Inquisition yeah. or crusades, <laughs> and it's like, we're not going to solve this right now, right. you know? But I just am intrigued by the questions there, and I think Catholics need to be able to respond, at least in some part, to with some nuance and, and recognize that this is complicated and that the past is complicated and there's good and there's bad, and be able to kind of sort out, you know, what makes somebody holy.
1: Yeah
0: cause he was made a saint. Yeah. You know, he was canonized as saint, And yeah. so that was controversial. I don't know if you've followed all, you know, like Junipero Serra or he's obviously Roman and yeah. Western, but
1: I, I stayed in the uh, Sarah dorm when I was at Thomas Aquinas college in Santa Paula, California. So the, the new dorm built was, was in before, I believe he was before a saint. Um, that would have been 1996. Yeah. That before he was made a saint. Um, but uh he uh i stayed in his dorm so i did a li- i knew a little bit about him from that um but i mean it it seems to me that regarding that whole idea we do believe that there is objective truth there is objective beauty and there is objective goodness we also believe that these things are at our most basic level attractive to us so we are created by god to be attracted to true what is true what is beautiful and what is good so i think the ideal is to say this is how we understand these things through revelation and reason and philosophy so to offer it to people i mean that that's i mean how, how many different cultures exist in our in our state now so if i walk around denver and i say if i want people to bring people to salvation, allow Christ to do that. If I want to be a John the Baptist to them, if I want to be a forerunner and prepare their hearts for Christ's coming, in a sense, it's better to offer it to them, you know, and to say, let me just be an apostle, one who's sent. Let me expose what true, what is true, beautiful, and good in a way that only I, that I mean, the way that I can, in, in a limited way, Christ could do it in a fullness of way, but to offer it to them. And, you know, I, I think if that happened, I don't know the history well enough. I don't think anybody does. But if I was, if I walked into a, another culture and I said, "Hey, think about this," you know, and the culture said, "You know what? That is true, good, and beautiful," and they changed their culture because of what was offered to them. I think three hundred years later, the postmoderns would say, "Yeah, they they imposed their their." Now, again, I'm sure imposition happened. I'm sure manipulation happened, slavery, all of that. That actually happened. But do we know if the ideal of offering it to someone, which I hope nobody would complain about, although if you don't believe in objective truth, maybe you would. Um, but, you know, what is offered to them, that, that is the ideal. And that, honestly, that goes for moral teachings to the church. I mean, when, when we take our morals into the political realm, like when we we want abortion outlawed, obviously, because we want to protect the unborn, we want to protect the vulnerable. But I think anybody would say it'd be better to reveal the evil that is so obvious with abortion to to offer real compassion, real help, and then to say, hey, let's not enforce making abortion illegal. Let let's let's offer the truth to people so that most people would say, yes, of course abortion is evil. It's quite obvious. But because of the gray of this world and you know individualism and, and relativity, things like that, people don't understand that. Misplaced compassion. So I think that that's the ideal of seeing a culture that needs true what is true good and beautiful is to in a sense reveal to them off be apostles evangelizers to that at some point you need a lot of step in because there is evil in the world the devil is active the devil's is active in people's hearts and in the case of abortion you need to protect the vulnerable children so those laws do need to be made but that is um, again that's a gray area and Christ works in that
0: yeah there's got to be. An offer, like you're saying. Yeah. And Jesus told us, go and teach all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh-huh. He claimed to be the sovereign over the whole world and claimed that the, the Jewish God or the God revealed to, to the Jews, I mean, there is only one God, so it's right. not like right. who's favorite or something. Right. <laughs> but... And it can look like that, right? It's That's your thing or whatever. And he, he said, go and spread this. Yeah. I want you to get everybody on board. Yeah. And so this same God who values culture, who values the people he makes, values all those beautiful things that we do too, you know, the Mayan pyramids mm-hmm. and... I'm a linguist and I got to stay in the Yucatan and I was with the Mayans and it was tragic to me that their language is suffering and they're kind of forcing... them. Well, caught in a very difficult situation where if they want to keep up with the world and get work or get education or whatever, you tend to leave the villages and go to the city and you stop being like Mayan... Villager, right? And there's not really any social incentive anymore to be Mayan villager. Yeah, but it's also a really beautiful thing in ways. You know, the simplicity of life, this um, language as an expression Mm -hmm. and cultural expression. The education's all in Spanish. You know. what are, I mean, all kinds of things like the the musical tradition, the storytelling, the mu- uh, the art, and all that stuff. So, yeah, there's something tragic about how world progress sort of threatens the beautiful expressions of um, primitive cultures or yeah. just cultures, you know. I, like encounter is always changing things. There's been thousands and thousands of cases of peoples. Who have come and gone, and I, you have to recognize that as a historian, right? That it's not like this is unique to that point in history. It's every time that cultures are interacting and blending and um, c- competing and yeah. moving. That you have lots of different change, and I'm not saying I don't want it to be like a, a sort of evolutionary model of who's the fittest is the conqueror or the technologically advanced. I think, you know, those, some of those Mayans are way happier than like the contemporary urban people. Mm -hmm. But, um, I don't know. There's an inevitability to it that I'm not sure we can just blame on this group or that group or whatever. And I'm not just trying to like defend. I, I, I see the tra- I feel the tragedy, you know, when culture is lost, and I think we're kind of at a point when that's especially felt when your only culture is McDonald's and Walmart and the same TV shows on Netflix right. across the country for five hundred million people, this is your best culture. nobody knows how to sing anymore, right. don't know how <laughs> to tell stories, don't know how yeah. to do art, don't know how to the wisdom to pass to the next generation yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think right now there's reason for us to value deep, long-standing, beautiful human cultures right. and to try to protect them. But I think we have to be careful to, 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 to distinguish, I think, in the movements of the missionaries between a, an abuse of, um, like, a manipulation of people from an ideology uh, and something valuable that's sort of offered and then recognized as a good.
1: Right. You know? Even if it's recognized later, I mean, there is like Matthew 28 go and baptize all nations. Like, you could interpret that if you remove it, if you take it out of the context of the Holy Bible. You can interpret that as saying like, yeah, I mean, walk through a town throwing water everywhere and just forcibly baptize people. I mean, I don't think Christians have ever interpreted it that way, although I did know a guy in college who said the idea would be to force everybody to be Catholic because if if you're Catholic, you're saved. I thought, dude, you're you're missing the whole point of, <laughs> of of the faith. But he, for at that time, he really did believe that. But there's, you know, I, I think if we say we don't forcibly baptize people because Jesus told us to baptize, like you, you have to read it in the rest of the context of the scriptures, and so they need faith. So it's it's like if we as Christians are saying my concern out of love for people is their salvation. Salvation doesn't come from forcing them to do something. If I force them, then they're not going to be saved because they're just doing it out of, because they're slaves to it. That, that doesn't help anybody. So the, the, when it's offered, whatever that looks like, th- then you're saying, I'm offering what I know and as much as Christ has given me the power to do, to invite you into an act of faith. To, to embrace these things for yourself, because that's the only way that there is salvation and true happiness and joy. Of course, if you've embraced it for yourself, so if you're if you're forcing it upon someone, you're doing even more damage than if, if they had never heard of it. I would imagine in most cases. So, but but I think that that's the messiness of it. Like in the you know in the sixteenth uh, through what eighteenth centuries, you know we have many orthodox who became Catholic, who reunited with the Catholic Church, and through various um, unions, Union of Brest, Union of Ushadot, etc., through these various unions. If you look at the time, it's very humbling, because we like to think that the Holy Spirit was at work, which I'm sure he was, but also it was very political. I mean, it was just helpful to the lives of the people living in Central and Eastern Europe to... Align themselves with the Catholic Church, and so we want to think it's this very pious thing. And again, in some cases, especially modern times, it can be. You know, I I feel this, you know, spirituality and and this way of praying, this way of understanding Christ and viewing Him as helpful to my salvation. But, um, but we we really it really was very practical in many ways. You know, so we might look now and want to say, well, yeah, isn't it better to be in union? God calls us all to union. So, so Eastern Catholics, we say that's part of our dedication to union in the church is being in union and dealing with all the all the troubles within union whereas the orthodox in a very beautiful way would say we believe that we're working towards union by remaining outside of union. By, In other words, by calling Catholics and Orthodox on to real change before we can have union with each other. I understand both sides, but but if you look at, at what is driving those, you, you'd hope that both sides are working purely guided by the Holy Spirit towards real union, but a lot of times it's very, very practical. And that's just a very humbling way of looking at it. You know, It's actually beneficial to me as a human being to be Byzantine Catholic. It's actually beneficial to me as a human being to be Orthodox. I'm getting benefits from it that are beyond merely, merely spiritual, but that that is part of it. So you know, again, what did Junipero Serra do? From what I'm hearing from you, is that he actually created a a, a better life, a, a, a better leisure time, a more thriving lifestyle that that uh, the European way he might have called it that he that he offered, hopefully only offered to the people, and they were attracted to that as much as they were to the, the Spanish Christianity.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's an important point just to make that there was, there's very little evidence, at least according to these authors, who I think are rather objective and aren't just trying to be apologetic or defend her unibro and make him a hero or whatever it is. It's a good biography that way. But they, um, they say that there's very little evidence that there was forced conversions. Okay. In California, okay. and th- in this mission. Now, yeah. that's not to say everywhere, every in throughout the history of Christianity, but I think we've got a pretty good record on right. that score anyway. But in California, and in, in this case, those Franciscans weren't into forcing anybody. Now, there were incentives, okay. so there was protection, right? There was sometimes economic incentives. Like, you as a parent could say, Well, if I, my kid gets educated, it looks like if we're going into this new society, they might be able to you know, kind of make their way. Um, there are some who say, look at those incentives. There's taxes that are uh, lifted and eased yeah. for people who are Christian. So that's a way of sort of yeah. coercing other people. But I think it was more about the majority of people are not Christian, and we're going to give incentives. To the people Just like Kind of helping out You know Taking care of our own and And you can't take care Of everybody everybody, You know Right So I don't know Maybe that was right Maybe it was wrong But it was Well That's usually the point Where people are like This was coercive This was manipulative And I don't think it's I don't think it's too bad I I get frustrated Because I know that in uh, Muslim countries Like Egypt And Um other places. Christians have higher taxes than Muslims and Jews. And they say the same thing, right? It's incentives for Muslims, and it's not coercive. But it's just another thing that's going to make life a little bit easier if I don't really care. I might as well be that side or whatever. I think that's
1: that's a personality thing. I mean, if you, my personality, my temperament, whatever you want to call it, if somebody says you're going to be taxed higher because you're Christian, I would say that reinforces my faith. I mean, yeah. literally, that 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 shows that I'm going to have to live a more radical life being Christian and I'm going to be less convinced to your ideology through persecution. If you're really persecuting me, then I, the, the rebel part of my personality is going to say, "You're this is not going to work. Like, do your worst. You know, it's not going to work. Now, again, I'm weak, I'm human, doing their worst might break me. I have to acknowledge that in humility, but that there is, you know, it, it is a big difference when you say, well, okay, let, let, let's compare what Jinnipur Asara did to modern Muslims in Egypt, you know, you, you you do, that's a good comparison, we need to look at both those sides and say, you know, I can imagine why some people, I mean, I, that's, I, I'm kind of ignorant of this because I'm celibate, if I had a family, it might be completely different, you know. Oh, no, you know, for the sake of my family, I think it would be good to take the tax breaks. It would be good to, to do this, even if it's just a show, you know, for yeah. the livelihood of my family. But that there is something to say, Do does that mean you stop offering incentives? I don't think it's that clear that that's right. an abuse, you know, because it, it, you could shoot yourself in the foot by offering incentives too, because some people are going to rebel against that and, and be even harder to convince, you know, whether even if it's true, good, and beautiful, or oh, yeah. you're trying to convince them of.
0: But I. I th- the point where the analogy breaks down, or I am sure there is many, <laughs> but one important point is that in this case you are dealing with a gross minority in the missionaries. The missionaries are not in control of society. It's right. the yeah. you know it's a wild frontier yeah. where there is a lot of different kinds of people roaming around, fighting each other, and uh, living their own lives. And this is another little group that's just kind of come on the scene is introducing itself. It's not this huge power right that is the majority of people, you know, doing something to a minority or something yeah. like that. So yeah. that's different. You might say, well, okay, they've got the momentum of being this huge world power and having a big army or I don't know, something like that. But the point of the the bringing this up is just to to ask that question is like what is being a missionary? What is sharing the best thing that you found? Without manipulating people or without like respecting their culture, it's almost like enculturation. You meet somebody, part of the art of the missionary work is I want to protect what's best in this person. I'm not trying to just make them into me. Right. I want them to be them. Right. But I want them to know Jesus. Right. Yeah. So I won't apologize for spreading the truth of the gospel. It's like, you know, this idea that you're forcing your ideas on somebody or you're something like that i mean this irish president she just yeah uh, there's a headline out that she's talking about infant baptism as uh, child abuse yeah you know but okay here's my problem with that right a parent has the responsibility to give the best things they know to the children they're raising right if you teach them to like certain foods or to eat certain foods, is that forcing them, manipulating? Yeah. If you teach them to speak your language, right. they could have lots of other options. Maybe they don't want to speak your language. Yeah. Maybe my kid doesn't want to speak English. Yeah. Maybe they want to speak Japanese. Yeah. I should just let them be deaf and dumb or I'm mean, like dumb. Yeah. Until they're old enough to learn Japanese, maybe. And
1: every kid wants to eat birthday cake three meals a day, you know? Yeah. while well, they're a kid. Are, yeah. are you abusing them by making them eat healthy? Right. I didn't like
0: not. mathematics. I yeah. didn't want to learn to read. Exactly. These are good things that people taught me right. because they're helpful for life and make you a good person and mature and capable of interacting with society. And religion is one of those. So I really... I mean, I'm frustrated with those who are trying to call religion just another ideology that is um, an imposition. It's opinions that you would impose right. on somebody. Right. Something you like that you're going to force somebody else to like. Right. And it's not. It's not the case. Right. It's something that has always been a human interest. Is always a question in human society, like art like language, this just exists. You know, it's, it's really more like mathematics or like language it's, or, or literature, something that we've, we've figured out how to do in a particular way. Yes, there might be other ways of doing it, and hopefully your child encounters other religions. Right. But if, they do, if you don't give them what you're convinced is the best thing, and teach them as much as you can know about this one, they are going to be at a loss for how to even interact with other people or other religions right um, and respect that you're not taking away their freedom they right. will be free right. and trust me they're going to do what they want they will be free yeah but give them the best stuff that you know
1: yeah it's just like a uh, happened what last week sarah Huggaby sanders the the sp- the uh, communications director, speaker for the president, um, walked into a s- little small town restaurant, and she got kicked out, you know, because of her politics. And they asked her to leave, and it was like, oh. it, it was, it was probably, I mean, in response to the the here in Colorado, the Catholic baker who went all the Supreme Court and and received, you know, in a sense, it's legal for you to not use your artistic talents to support a cause that you morally go against. And it's like, when she got kicked out of the restaurant, I just thought, you know, amen. Are we moving as a society society towards the ability to, again, honestly, her getting kicked out of a restaurant is very, very different than than the wedding cake situation because the wedding cake guy would sell a basic cake to anybody who asked. He was not prejudiced against against homosexuals, same-sex attracted to gays. He was not prejudiced, he was still sell to them. It was using his art to promote it by by making a cake that promoted a, a gay wedding that that was against his conscience. Now kicking someone out of a restaurant, he would he wouldn't kick someone out of his, his cake shop. He would he would bake them a cake as long as it wasn't the art on the cake wasn't supporting a gay wedding. So it is different. But but th- there is this there is this Freedom that, based on politics again, I would I am I am for any laws mandating that someone serve to any group of people, anybody that walks in, you know, feed them whatever. But I by also support any laws saying you don't need to use your art or your finances to support something you're morally against. Um, so it's a subtlety that, again, in our society, postmodern world, we don't get subtleties much anymore. Um, but I think I think that is the the situation you're talking about when you have colonialization. Was was it offered or was it forced? It's probably gray, and some did, some some did not. But you know, it, can we understand that subtlety and then move forward with it and say some Christians, the vast majority, I hope. Offered something beautiful, good, and true, and, and was able to change cultures for the better. I mean, everybody wants to change culture. No, nobody would argue that some of his cultures need to be changed. I mean, right now, many you know liberals are trying to change the fact that that Donald Trump is is our president, and before him, many conservatives are trying to change the fact that Obama was our president. You know that th- that was just the case for a while. So we we all want to move cultures forward towards you know you know happiness and well being, et cetera. Um, but a, a quick story, I might have shared this before too. Well, just. Go ahead. A
0: point that yeah. the political analogy is a good one because it deals with um, things that are very important to people. Right. You know, it's like, what is the future of our society? Who's influencing our children? How, is thing, how are things uh, organized, and how do I benefit and interact with the rest of society? So those are very important practical things. But I don't want to confuse mm. the gospel of Jesus Christ with a political Right um, agenda or platform or something like yeah. that. One I think that's part of the, the reason that yeah. people are getting confused right now. Okay, is
1: You're that right. yeah? Good call.
0: Is that um, that's like something that belongs to a social justice liberal, right? You know the Jesus talk, an opinion, or it's something that belongs to the you know the right wing conservative, right? And it's different. This is good news. Absolutely. It transcends. Not only our politics, but the, all of the different countries with their different ideas about how to govern right it 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 relates to those, so we don't stop talking about them and of course it's important but this is a good that is even higher than all of those right. and even and, and it's it's less about opinion than those kind of important matters about how society should be run.
1: And that might, thank you for that, for distinguishing that. And I also think that that can be the distinction between, between morals, truth and, and politics, which is opinion generally. So, because you have, you're saying if you have, say, Junipero Serra comes in and he offers the, the beauty of, of Christianity to people, that's religion. If he forced on people, that's politics. I mean, that now you're getting, you are really starting to say, I'm moving beyond the, the area of moral good, where, where you have personal autonomy, personal freedom to decide this or not, to saying you don't have the freedom to decide it or not. And that honestly is politics. That, that, that is trying to move society in a way through coercion um, rather than encouragement. And so that, that, that probably, if we can say, well, no, Giuseppe Rosera used religion and faith rather than politics because he did not force. Yeah, there's sense. a
0: lot of different ideologies and everything. But he didn't try, his his end was not worldly. It wasn't about how should these people be organized right. because their life is, um, I don't know, that they, they need somebody to come and inter, like impose something right. on them. I think it was more of a, like, this is coming, this wave is coming, and we need to do something to, protect, and involve these people. Yeah. And um, I don't know that the intentions were always 100% pure, but it looks like those first wave missionaries, they weren't, they're not bad guys, you know? Right. Right. I mean, you might say, I think you can still say colonialization is a tragic turn in history. Um, I think it's hard to say we need to, Feel guilty or blame you know west the Western culture or ourselves or you know whatever a lot of these things get picked up, but you could say that colonialization wasn't done the right way and still praise the missionaries right for yeah, bringing that, the gospel exactly. of Jesus and having a whole different message rather than subjugating people or yeah. coercing them and a lot of times the one example they give in the book that I like of inculturation. Uh, a lot of the missionaries tried very hard to protect the indigenous cultures, but of course they're foreign, so they don't really know right. how to do that. Right. And um, it takes a lot of like sort of empowering the local leaders and all that stuff. But one thing was the music. They yeah. used all the, the local instruments and brought that into, like, liturgical elements and nice. all of this stuff. And not to be like a... There was a weird point in the 70s where we were all yeah. trying to do native <laughs> things. You right. Know, dance and, like, I'm Swedish and Bohemian. Okay. We don't dance like Africans right. and call it inculturation. <laughs> right, right. So, um, yeah, there's that stuff. And then there's other initiatives. Like, in Jerusalem, the patriarch when I lived there, Fuad... Mm-hmm. he is a Bedouin, hmm. you know, his um, native tribe are in the desert. They're not all Catholics, but enough of them are yeah. that uh, they have leaders that come from their local culture, wow. but they think very particular, you know, okay. and they have the language and cultures and stuff. And, and I thought it was good that he, he was raised to that position and he could help kind of protect those things. Yeah, but. absolutely. Okay, so that's... Yeah. Well,
1: yeah, I have a quick story. Um, there was a missionary priest who came to preach one time, I believe at the cathedral here, when I was already a priest. He talked about the, the the evangelization of Papua New Guinea. Again, I might have shared this already. I know I say that a lot. but um, And he said that the first missionaries to Papua New Guinea went there and, and just immersed themselves in the culture that was already present and realized that, that most of the natives believed in two gods that had equal power, one that was good and one that was evil. And what he found was that the people, if you present Two gods who are equally powerful, one that's good with evil, people will not, people will tend more to live in fear. Of the evil god, Mm. than hope in the positive god. It's just like a human condition. So like they they were they were fearful people, and it wasn't like oh half the day I'm I'm very hopeful and happy, half the day I'm I'm fearful. No, hundred percent of the day they're fearful because of the equality of the gods. And as soon as the Christian missionaries came in and said, "Oh no, there is evil, there is a devil, there is Satan, but he's not nearly as powerful as the as the God who created him," you know, and so all of a sudden they were told, "Yes, what you're feeling." What what you're realizing in the good and evil exist, and they even exist in two different beings, but the strong one is infinitely stronger, the good one is infinitely stronger than the bad one, and that, I mean, the conversion happened overnight. People were so happy to not live in fear but to have in a sense their their perception of the world yes you are correct in the good and evil but look at it this way and that this might be the truth and they said because of the beauty of that and the fearlessness of it that is the truth we want and he says that the whole island converted you know almost immediately because of the message but it didn't it, it wasn't forced upon them it wasn't imposed yeah. upon them it was just presented in a way that that they saw the culture the way it was, and then, like Paul does in the Acropolis, right? And then it says, "Hey, you, you, you've been doing things partially right. Now let's bring that to its logical conclusion, you know, and its true conclusion of Christianity." Yeah. So I thought that was a beautiful story of of evangelization done correctly to an entire culture.
0: And I think some of my favorite missionaries are those missionaries of charity that I oh, yeah. chaplain. I mean, they just really focus on loving the poor, taking care of people. And I've witnessed this. I swear to you. They are not out there trying to baptize everybody. Yeah. They are cleaning the wounds of people who are dying, loving yeah. people. They want to be the face of Christ
1: to yeah. people yeah. and
0: love them. And a lot of those people ask for baptism. Yeah. They say, I don't know what it is that you have, but right. I want it. Because you smile like nobody else does. Yeah. And you care about people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So um, we thank all those missionaries out there.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think we've got to
0: wrap it up. but Yeah, we're good. Getting...
1: Not... I didn't get of the time either, but... Okay, you got any shout outs? I, I do. Actually, I saved two for this one. Do you have any?
0: I have to look them up.
1: Okay, so uh, I'm opening my phone right now because I actually took a photo of this one. Uh, so, um, here we go. I right, shout out. Uh, so, Father Michael so i just had dinner with my friends and i just heard their shout out from a couple of years ago they wanted to follow up and say that their firstborn son is named alexander they also have another one on the way would you mind possibly getting a shout out on the next available podcast these are the young blues j-u-n-g-b-l-u-t-h-s, J-U-N-G-B-L-U-T-H-S. So anyway i don't think i give their shout out but somebody might have maybe i did um, i just forgot um, but they each had their firstborn son named Alexander. God bless you guys, Jung Bluths. Um, Alexander Jung Yes, exactly. Your friend Kevin from this, um, from Epra, of Dicey's Phoenix. Um, and uh, that he sent this shout out to you guys. Also, my second shout out was it you who told me? Somebody told me that they were talking to a therapist or a psychologist or something. And they said that, that my laugh was very therapeutic. Oh, yeah. Was that you? No, there's an
0: email that. Uh, oh. that they,
1: Oh really? Team, yeah, he sent know. he sent ahead. I'm not very good at checking it. <laughs> uh,
0: it was Oh no, it was a letter that we got. So those okay. go sometimes get passed uh, on. Yeah, to different guys. yeah, they go to Andrew in and there. Yeah. But it had this PS note that this voice therapist, uh, voice, therapist voice therapist, said that you have the most healing and beautiful <laughs> laugh she's ever heard. I don't know. She probably uses it to heal people.
1: I I get complimented on my laugh so much, that like I almost get insecure about it because no, I've listened back before good, and I think I, I like it. too much. But it's not like I'm trying. I'm not forcing it. It's just I know.
0: Just, just keep laughing, man. It's healing so. properties right. are so healing the shout world. shout
1: out to you, voice therapist. I appreciate that. <laughs> I made my day when I heard we'll that. We'll have to
0: look up that Thank name. Yeah. I'm not sure who's got that letter now. It was nice. It also thanked us for showing people that young priests are cool like pirates. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. We'll take it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I like it.
0: Okay, so I've got one for uh, Daniel Corso, who must have sent me an email, and it uh, has him at St. Augustine's Seminary in Toronto. Okay. And he wants an episode on Humanae Vitae. I think uh, we can make that happen, yeah. but I don't know when. No. And then he says, Give a special mention to my brother seminarian and cycling buddy, Michel Quinville. Be sure to make fun of him for being French-Canadian. He'll get a kick out of it
1: mispronounce his name
0: well i think in i already overly overly did french way <laughs> <laughs> i'm also a Michel, so i think that's a, uh, okay. the same um i don't know how to make fun of you for it man i love french culture these cheese eaters it's like hockey <laughs> people up there i just i like my favorite thing about it is um, when you're walking the street in a caller they say bonjour mon père mon père they they greet you as my father and they yeah. say it like that. A lot of people on the streets are just mon We actually have
1: French blood. My, my, you do. My maternal Canadian grandfather. French? No, not not Canadian. I mean, I don't know how to make fun of French Canadians, but one of my favorite people in the world, also Pauline Bier, shout out, is French, born in France, came over here. Has no accent anymore. She teaches us Sophie Massori French, so I love her. But my favorite French joke is a. Uh, I'm gonna mess this up, but anyway, it's a it's a classified ad that says you know French french rifle for sale never shot dropped twice <laughs> <laughs> Really? <laughs> that's horrible yeah, that's pretty good anyway i'm getting I'm not I'm getting great. a call from actually a podcast listener right now any focus on sideway. So anyway. all right <laughs> she probably so saw the facebook post but i, I can't pick no up calls
0: during the show yeah, exactly all right, people <laughs> this ain't radio okay um what was i gonna say oh french Canadian. Yeah. yeah yeah so my only other uh, religious in the family was a nun who, I think in Canada, who left the convent to run off with a, f- a uh, French fur trapper. Oh. So thanks a lot, French Canada. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Can there other- There is the insult we want. You're farming <laughs> vocations. <laughs> <laughs> Every one of you.
0: I don't know how it works. Uh, quick shout-out to Terry Wright. Yeah, I want to you know. do a, uh, an episode on... I keep snapping like that. Stuff it's going to be you. annoying. Sorry, people in the cars. So... He just wrote a book about Dorothy Day that's published by Ignatius Press. He's an awesome guy. He's a great professor and a good friend. So we're looking forward to interviewing him. Yeah, sometime. And I'm putting him on the spot because he hasn't agreed to interview. Okay. I just he gave me a copy of his book, and I'm looking forward to
1: so. he'll give you the full name of the book and the full name of the
0: author. Dorothy Day: An Introduction to Her Life and Thought by Terence C. Wright. Nice. Yeah. And then uh, Alana Boudreau. My other uh, favorite French Canadian has recently re- released her new album, so I'm going to get, I'm going to read this and listen to the album, and then we're going to do real
1: stuff about it. Yeah, what is the album called? Because I, I saw that on Instagram that she had put that out.
0: I was looking on my phone, and I, I didn't want you sorry. to ask me. I don't mean to call it's Something about album. a stranger, beautiful stranger, beautiful. perfect strangers right. was a sitcom when I was growing up.
1: The beautiful stranger. Anyway, we'll, we'll have to figure it out. Uh, let me see if she pops up. If she pops up very quickly on Instagram as I'm as i she posts quite often, which is nice. Uh, but I don't see her. Right. as right, I'm scrolling.
0: In the meantime, okay. what's up, uh, Matt Tynan? Thanks for the car for the summer. Nice. Thanks for the email that talks about this guy. The uh, guy from. Starsky and
1: Hatch Hutch <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, your nickname, that's right Yeah, I've got in a
0: thousand here
1: So maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll post that picture I'm going to take a picture of you wearing your hat And we'll use that as a photo on Facebook
0: There's on the this guy, Huggy Bear That was a character on Starsky and Hutch And he looks like a cool dude He looks <laughs> a lot like me So if you were wondering what I look like Just uh, Google mm-hmm. Huggy Bear Google, uh, the Google Images. Nice.
1: And Alana Boudreau's CD, Goodbye Stranger, Goodbye is coming Stranger. in July 2018, so check that out.
0: Right on. Okay, we got to go. we got to get this guy some lunch.
1: Yes. All right, Catholic. Podcast at gmail, You know how to get a hold of us all the other ways as well. All right, God bless you all. Like us
0: on Facebook. Tell your grandmother and your best friends about us.